0: All the young people are dismissed, Luke chapter 5, and then if you would, put your finger there and then turn to John chapter 21, do something I don't often do, and today we're going to read two different passages, uh, and you'll see in a moment uh, where we're going with that. Luke chapter 5 and John chapter 21. The story is told about an old farm couple who were driving along in their pickup and they met another pickup coming their direction and as they drew closer, they saw that the younger couple in the pickup were sitting very close up to each other. She was kind of snuggle over to him as he's driving and the wife says to her husband, you remember when we were younger? I mean, we never sit all snuggled up again like we used to. Uh, we don't do that anymore. And he looks over to her and he replies, I'd just like to point out, and I'm in the same place that I've always been. I didn't move. Uh, sometimes when we find as a church or as individuals, we aren't as close to God as we once were, understand this, he didn't move. We are the ones that moved. He did not move. In his book that he wrote, Oswald J. Uh, J. Oswald Sanders, uh, the book Enjoying Intimacy with God, he makes a piercing observation. I've alluded to this before, but we are at this moment, he says, as close to God as we really choose to be. True, there are times when we would like to know a deeper intimacy, but when it comes to the point, we're not prepared to pay the price involved. End quote. I want to look at two passages today and compare these two together. We'll be referring to both of them, and I think it will be an insightful story for us Luke chapter 5 and verse number 1 and it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two ships standing by the lake but the fishermen were going out of them and were washing their nets that means they were done fishing for the night and he entered into one of the ships which was Simon's and prayed him that they would thrust out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people (coughs) out of the ship when he had left speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a drought. And Simon answered unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and bo- filled both the ships. So they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I want you to remember that response. Now turn over to John chapter 21 if you would. John chapter 21, you can keep your finger there if you would like. We'll be kind of jumping back and forth. John chapter 21 also starting at verse 1. Now this is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, the disciples, led by Peter, have decided to go back to their old life. I go fishing, Peter said. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples in the Sea of Tiberias. On this wise, showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter said unto them, "I go a fishing." I don't believe that meant, "Hey, let's go fishing." See, I believe he's talking about returning to a life. I believe he's talking about forsaking the ministry, going back to what he was doing before. And you don't ever do this alone, friend. You don't ever forsake God and not make an impact because the next words are, they say unto him, we also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. That night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. He said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore the disciples, the disciple, excuse me, whom Jesus loved, said unto Peter, This was John. John is called the beloved disciple, the disciple Jesus loved. You only see that reference in the book of John. I find that interesting. It's true. Look through your Bible. None of the other Gospels ever. Matthew never said, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So here's, here in John, he says, when, we, when the disciple that Jesus loved said unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked and did cast himself into the sea. Couldn't get to Jesus fast enough. The other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were, 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. I want to preach today for a few minutes in the deep water, in the deep water. Father, I pray you'd help us, I pray you'd help us, your, just bless the reading of your word here, help that to make the impact, that's really what matters, what we do with your word, I pray you'd help us to do it justice, in Jesus' name, amen. We have here two miracles. They are of the same type, but they're not the same one. They are really, if you would look at it this way, they're kind of two bookends to Peter's life with Jesus. There is one at the very beginning, the miracle of many fish, and then there's this other miracle of many fish at the very end, just before Jesus ascends to heaven. And one of the things that is fascinating in this story, and of course all throughout the gospel, uh, in the Bible, is, is the details that we find in it. It reminds us that these are not myths. These are not fairy tales that we read in the Bible. You don't write fables like they do here. In John 21, it says that they were only 200 cubits uh, from the shore. They're about, that's about 100 yards from land. It tells us when Peter knew that it was Jesus, he tied his outer garment around him. It tells us when they brought in the fish, there were 153 fish. Useless details. They don't promote the plot of the story at all. They don't add anything to the legend, at least not the way legends were written back then. So why did the writers mention 153 fish? Why did they mention that they were just 100 yards from the shore? Why did they mention what Peter wore? I'll tell you why they remembered them. These are eyewitness accounts. These are not fairy tales. They're not stories that are made up. These are eyewitness accounts, and they're writing these things down. Something else I find interesting, in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus tells him to throw his nets in the deep, Uh, He says this, Simon Peter says, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Children, especially teenagers, when you say do this, they answer with the word why a lot of times. A little frustrating at times. Uh, In other words, they want to know what you just told them or what you told them to do is not enough. They want to know what the reason is. And let's just be a little honest here. As parents, that can be frustrating. Uh, as a parent, it's irritating because we don't want to hear questions. We don't want to hear uh, re- resistance. We would just like for them to obey. We like obedience. Don't talk back. Don't argue. Don't trouble us. Don't make us tell you over and over. Like the kid who liked to put things into wall plugins, His parents told him over and over, don't play with electricity. In the end, he got grounded. Just making sure you catch that, all right? Those are things we throw in there just to make sure we're all awake as we move along. But we would agree that sometimes it's hard to do the right thing when we have no idea why. Here's Peter. He has absolutely no reason to put out into the deep water. No reason at all to let down the nets. He knows this. Nothing in his vast experience of fishermen, fishing, leads him to believe this is a good idea. And Peter, by the way, does no fishing. Uh, this story is not directly out of Genesis 1. It was written by someone else, but I, I got a chuckle in how they uh, presented this story. After creating heaven and earth, God created Adam and Eve. And the first thing he said unto them was, Don't. Don't what? Adam says, don't eat the forbidden fruit, God said. The forbidden fruit? Hey, we've got forbidden fruit, Eve. Uh, no way. Yes way, we have forbidden fruit. Don't eat the fruit, said God. Why? Because I'm your creator, and I said so. That's what God said, wondering why he hadn't stopped after making the elephants. A few minutes later, God saw the kids having an apple break, and he got angry. Didn't I tell you not to eat the fruit? God said. Uh-huh, Adam said. Then why did you? I don't know, answered Eve. She started it, Adam said. Did not. Did so. Did too. God had had it with the two of them. And his punishment was severe. From then on, we would have children of our own. That was God's punishment to us. Now, the only reason that Peter obeys here is because I said so. Look at what the Bible says. Uh, He says, uh, by the way, that's not a bad reason to do something that God tells us to do, amen? Uh, We don't like because I said so. Kids do not like because I said so. But we don't have to understand the whys behind everything that God says. The Bible tells us that's enough reason to do something. And here, uh, Peter, in essence, is saying, Jesus, I have no reason to do this. It is completely impractical. But because you say so, I'll do it. Nevertheless, at thy word. And I like that word, nevertheless. Uh, Peter did not let his adverse situation keep him from obeying God. Uh, he He had seen failure. That's the nothing represented in all they had gotten that night. He had seen fatigue. That's in the fact that they had toiled all night. But nevertheless, Peter said, I'll obey the Lord. This is a noble response to Jesus' order. Nevertheless, when we're commanded in Scripture to act, to live, and to do a certain way, there are usually two sides to that coin. There is my understanding and my opinion of the matter, and then there is what Jesus says to do. And you say, well, how does that work? Let me give you an example here, because this is something we struggle with every day in our life. One example, in Matthew 5.39, Jesus made this statement. Whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Wait, so somebody hits me, and I have to let them do it again. And not only do it again, but it's sign, it kind of seems here to invite them to do it again. Turn the other cheek. A slap on the face has always been regarded as a highly incendiary insult. So when people smite us, we are to turn the other cheek. Jesus illustrated this with his life and what he meant by this rule, I believe, because when he was struck in the face, it did not he didn't literally turn the other cheek and ask for another one, but though he had the power, with one word he could have cast them all into hellfire. Though he had the power, he acted with sublime restraint. John chapter 18. The idea is not that we passively suffer the assault over and over of a bully or a thief, but when the cause of Christ says that we ought to turn the other cheek, we should. Now, I want to focus the fact that on this miracle, it was performed twice. And what's so interesting is that these miracles, they're so much the same about them, yet there's something very markedly different that I'd like to point out this morning, I think will be a help to us. But look, look, looking at them, first of all, though, it's the same problem. They've been fishing, and they haven't caught anything. Uh, fish, by the way, I've heard, come in three sizes, small, medium, and the one that got away. Uh, those, but they didn't have any of them. They didn't have small, medium, or the one that got, well, they had the one that got away. That's all they had. And so they, it's also the same response by Jesus. You have the same problem, and you have the same response. Both times, Jesus says, do something, which neither one of them made any sense, but he says, do something at my word. You see, in the beginning, in the first one here, he says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draw. And you're to do this at my word. Do it just because I said so. That's hard. It's hard in life. It's hard as a kid. It's hard as an adult. In John chapter 21, a second time, He says the same thing, or close to the same thing. He says, cast the net on the right side of the ship. Now, this makes no sense. Throw it on the other side. We've been fishing all night. We've been throwing it everywhere and to no avail. And then there's this guy on the shore out there. They didn't know who it was yet, the Bible says. So this guy on the shore tells us to throw it over on the other side. Yes, that's right. Throw it over on the other side of the ship makes no sense. How does he know where the fish are? There's no good reason for them to obey unless it's Jesus. So they have the same problem in both situations. They have the same directive from the Lord. Jesus says, obey and do it just because it's me, just because I said so. Now follow me. Then the same miracle happens both times. It's shocking. It's unanticipated. There's an incredible catch of fish. It happens both times when the experts have said it can't happen. Amen? Can I tell you, friend, the experts don't always have the answer to every situation. I'd like to remind you the Titanic was built by experts. The ark was built by an amateur. Sometimes the experts don't have all the answers, and here they certainly didn't. God was in control. In both cases, Peter has a very strong reaction. In both cases, it has nothing to do with the fish. Neither time does Peter say, Ha ha, that's great! Look at all these fish! Both times, he ignores the fish. Doesn't even really look at them that we see in Scripture. Peter knew the point of the miracle was not the fish, but about Jesus Christ. Now, in the midst of all the similarities in these miracles, there is one marked difference. The reaction of Peter is a totally opposite one. And I want to focus on that this morning. I think it's fascinating. The first time, Peter says, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Uh, There's nothing to do uh, with you. I'm sorry, I want nothing to do with you, he says. I am not worthy. If they weren't on a boat, Peter probably would have run. Now at that time, they were out in the deep. It was the second time they were 100 yards from shore. Here they were out in the deep. And Peter probably couldn't run because at that point, he wasn't walking on water yet. Amen? And so, he would—he did not run, but he wanted nothing to do, or nothing more than just to get away from Jesus. Now, in John chapter 21, he's like a crazy man. He jumps out of the boat just in desperation to get as close to Jesus as he possibly can and to get there as fast as he possibly can. Isn't that something? Same problem, same miracle. Same response by Jesus, same outcome, two totally different reactions. It's fascinating. This teaches us a couple of things I want to look at and to try to describe Peter's mindset. First of all, it teaches about the holiness of Christ. In both cases, Jesus is showing that he he is a person of unbelievable power, that he has control over even nature. In other words, in both cases, Jesus shows very clearly his sovereignty, his authority. Now, in Luke chapter 5, we see the normal human response to supernatural power. We see there really the truth that to get near to God is often a very unpleasant experience. Now, let me just explain that. This flies kind of in, in popular perception in the way we talk and the way we think that uh, you know, we get close to God and it's all warm and fluffy. But the Bible shows that anybody really gets a good view of God, anybody gets real close to God, they often find they're in pretty deep trouble. Anybody who gets near to the biblical God finds themselves in a dire situation. Uh, there's pain. Sometimes there's wounding. Let me give you some examples. There's Jacob. In Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is at a crisis time in his life. Uh, he's about to meet his brother Esau and he's worried about what might happen and Esau's got a big army coming his way and he's got uh, his people. There's no way he can be a physical match for his older brother and his older brother for years has been trying to kill him and so here he doesn't know what's going to happen and he's out alone, he's in the dark of the night and he's praying, he's uh, uh, worrying, he's probably pacing and the Bible says that all of a sudden he was attacked from the darkness. Uh, this stranger that attacked him uh, had tremendous power, and they wrestled for hours. Jacob is a strong man himself, but he cannot overcome this stranger, and the day begins to dawn. Uh, he says, we find in verse 26, the wrestler, the stranger, says to him, Let me go, for the day breaketh. This is in Genesis 32. Jacob by now has concluded, this is not an ordinary man. Uh, this is uh, God himself, and so, He says, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. The power of the stranger is so great that he reaches out, touches the hip of Jacob, almost destroys it. The Bible says he puts it out of joint. All he does is touch it. Jacob never walks right again for the rest of his life. Jacob realized it was the Lord, and he was amazed. When it was all over, he called the place Peniel. The word Peniel means to uh, face God. Jacob said, for I've seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. Uh, he was permanently wounded though. I have the, I always picture in my mind the next morning, uh, coming out of the woods. When you wrestle all night, he's had to be dirty. He had to have sand in his ears. His hair had to be wild and messy. And plus that, he's wounded. He's limping. And so he's got this crutch he made from, uh, a, uh, a stick and he's limping out of the woods. And somebody takes a look, maybe his wife or a servant or somebody takes one look at him. What in the wide world happened to you? I've been blessed of the Lord. That's what he said. He, he, he was victorious, he thought. I got a blessing of God, and all I did, all that's happened is I'm permanently disabled. Praise God. That's how he thought here. Thought he'd come out pretty well, and he had. You get close to God, sometimes there's some wounding involved. Look at Job. He gets near God. He actually experienced the presence of the Lord. He says in Job 42, 5 and 6, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible says, in the year of King Uzziah, I saw, I al- I saw also the Lord. When this happened, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Psychologically, he's absolutely destroyed. Uh, he, what's going on here is not that hard to understand. We always have this type of experience when, we, when we're when we in the presence of God's holiness. It's not always gumdrops and lollipops. Sometimes uh, there's pain there. Rudolf Otto was a German theologian, one of the most influential religious scholars of the early 20th century. He wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy. And he introduced in that book a term uh, that's been used by numerous preachers throughout the uh, time since, but a term of how we respond to the holy. The term is numinous awe. This is how when we experience a strong, passionate, but opposing reaction our responses to the holy. He says on one hand, when you come near the holy, you're fascinated. Uh, you are attracted to it. At the same time, you're scared and often even in pain. You're fascinated and you're frightened. I think we see that throughout Scripture when we see the different times people faced an angel or the Lord. Why? Why are you so frightened? Because you know you're not holy. And that's the problem with the human condition. We can't live with God and we can't live without God. We're attracted for many reasons. We need something. We need to worship something. And so people are attracted to God in some way, uh, yet at the same time, a holy God exposes us. And it does so not without a little bit of trauma sometimes. That's why I believe that so many religions exist. It's a way to get around who God really is. It's a way for me to feel better about myself with a list of rules that I can obey. Because anytime you get really near God, you'll experience this conflict. I've heard statements made to me along this line in, in talking and witnessing to people. You know, I feel close to God when I'm just out on the lake. I feel closest to God when I'm doing what I want. I don't have to come to church. I don't have to read my Bible. I just feel near to God when I'm doing what I enjoy. That's when I feel near to God. Friend, if you're feeling near to God, and there's no conflict, there's no trauma, you're not near the real thing. The real thing shows us what we really are. When you get a good glimpse of God, He's like the storm on a lake that stirs up all the gunk on the bottom, and it's not as clean as it was anymore. When you get near God, there's trauma, there's conflict, and it stirs up the gunk at the bottom of your heart, and you see yourself for who you really are, and you wrestle, and often there is some pain involved. Uh, You see, just to get near God, just to be religious, it it doesn't work. It might help in the beginning. If you decide to uh, get religious or try to live a religious life, a better life, I'm going to put this out of my life. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to try to obey the Ten Commandments. I'm going to go to church faithfully in the beginning. There'll be some relief. Your conscience might feel better, but the closer you get to God and the more that you spend time in the Word and the more faithful you are, and the more you fellowship with godly people, you're going to start feeling worse about your condition. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Grace gives us no license to forget God's holiness. He is our father, but he's also a consuming fire. In the Old Testament, God put distance between the Ark of the Covenant and between that that and the people. Now, the distance has been removed, but the burning holiness remains. And the closer you get to God, the more that it's going to start to burn you. It's going to, you're going to see more how absolutely holy He is and how absolutely inadequate we are. Now thats I've heard the statement made one time, and this is, this is exactly why this statement can be made. I've tried religion, and it made me feel terrible. That's why. Getting close and trying to, dip your toe in a little bit but never really get in the real thing and and as the more you illuminate yourself uh, uh under the the uh light of God's word the more you see yourself for what you really are that i believe is the peter of luke chapter 5 when jesus gets in peter's boat think about how that makes him feel i got the biggest rabbi in the in the place in my boat think about what this will do for me in fact jesus let's get a selfie Go put it on facebook and uh, this is a good thing. This is going to make me somebody. Hey, the rabbi has chosen my boat. And so I am going to be somebody if I'm seen around him. Religion, morality, doing your best. First you feel good. Look what happens. Simon Peter might have felt pretty good about himself. I got a miracle worker in my boat. Then he saw Jesus for who he really was. He got a glimpse of the holy. He got a glimpse of the supernatural. He got a glimpse of Jesus isn't like any other man and his first words were, depart from me, oh Lord, for I'm a sinful man. wanted nothing to do with him. Now I've seen this and I've experienced this in ministry. Often people will come to church, they'll try religion, uh, to, trying to make themselves feel better, like taking a vitamin or getting some kind of a boost, checking off a list, uh, a, a good deed list, uh, getting one more check on it there. But when you get into your Bible, you get under biblical preaching, you're faithful for three services a week, and at first you feel good maybe, but then you start getting a glimpse of who God really is, and you feel terrible. You'll feel like Peter, like Isaiah, like Job. You'll say, I can never live up to these standards. The closer you get to Him, the more you see what you are not. It can spiritually traumatize you, numinous awe. It can attract us, but yet also repel us. But notice how Peter has changed. What made the Peter of Luke chapter 5 into the Peter of John chapter 21? Think about this. Remember the Peter of John chapter 21 is the one uh, Peter that hasn't seen Jesus since the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection. He he Here's Peter and Peter has failed Jesus miserably. They're about to talk about it if you continue reading John 21. He has failed him in almost the worst possible way. He swore he would never deny Jesus. Matthew 26, Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men should be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. He had the tremendous test of his master being crucified. And he denied him three times. He chickened out. Uh, he was a coward. Worst of all, Jesus had told him he's going to do it. Worse than that, Peter had argued. And then he went and did it after all. You talk about messing up. Add to all that, Peter is now much more aware of his sin in John chapter 21 than he was in Luke chapter 5. Peter spent three years with Jesus. He knows what right and wrong is. He knows how he's supposed to live. And I add to that his failure. Yet this time, the instant he sees who Jesus is, The instant he sees the miracle, he can't get to the man on the shore fast enough. He can't even wait for the ship to get a 100 yards to the shore. He jumps out of the ship. He flounders and swims and runs over to get to Jesus. What in the wide world happened to Peter? Well, he understands the gospel. You see, there's a problem with Old Testament religion. People would get near to God, the people, of children of Israel. They would get near to God. God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, but nobody could go in there because of their sin. Only the high priest could go in there once in a while, but people couldn't go actually in there so they could get near, but they couldn't go all the way in. Only the high priest could do that. And a few special people like Moses, the Bible says, saw God to face to face, but Jacob, uh, we saw in the story, got close, but didn't get all the way there. But most people were near. Jesus Christ is the real high priest. He laid himself down on the altar as a sacrifice for our sins. He paid that sacrifice. He paid for our sins. The moment that he died, the Bible says the veil in that temple was split from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top by man, but from the top to the bottom by God. He took that separation, what separated man from the holiness of God, (coughs) and he tore it in two. That's why Hebrews 4.16 could exist. Let us therefore boldly come to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. We could not come to the throne of grace had Jesus not paid our, the price for our sin. You see, the point of the gospel is not you need to get religious. You need to start doing a whole list of good deeds. You, need to, uh, you were an unbelieving person, now you need to get religious. You were kind of far away, now you get near. No, the point is not to get near to God, it's to get all of Him. You want to get in the deep water. Amen. Getting near to God can even be worse than being far away. You want to uh, get into Christ. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The way to do this is to realize you're not saved by your good deeds. There's nothing you can do to save your own soul and take yourself to heaven. There's no amount of, of, uh, of things that you can stack up and uh, uh, collect good deeds and those things to get yourself to heaven. You have to accept what Jesus Christ did for you and rely on that completely. That's the only explanation for the change that happened in Peter's life. Here's Peter. He needs forgiveness. He has failed his Savior tremendously. He feels so sinful. The Bible has said that he went out and wept bitterly. Could not believe when he heard that rooster. I can't imagine the feeling that got into him, but he could not believe me and my big mouth. In fact, in front of all the other disciples, he told Jesus that all these guys might deny you, but I won't. And then he did. And how low he must feel! At one time, don't miss this. This is the point of the message. At one time, his sins drove him from Christ. Now his sins drive him to Christ. There's a that's the change between religion and the gospel. Uh, When you are religious, that is depending on your own merit, and you mess up and you mess up bad, your first reaction, oh no, God's going to get me. That's religion. When you understand the gospel, and you mess up and you mess up bad, your first reaction is, oh my, I need my Father. And it drives you to Him. Let me ask you a question today, friend. Are you getting near Jesus Or are you getting all the way in? Are you relying on your kind of religion or your morality? Or do you understand the gospel, recognizing that he paid the price and he paid it on Calvary and he paid it for each and every one of us? You're completely saved by grace through what Jesus did. Let me ask you another way. Are you a Luke chapter 5, Peter? Or are you a Luke chapter 21, Peter? Uh, in, In other words, when you feel your worst, when you feel like your greatest failure, when you feel like there's no hope left for you, does that sense of failure that make you not want to come to church? Does that sense of failure make you not want to pray? Uh, does that uh, sense of failure make you think I can't even get close to the Lord anymore? Or does it make you want to say, "I want to get as close to God as possible"? That's the difference between a John cha- or Luke chapter five and a John chapter twenty-one. Peter, jump out of that boat, swim to him, wade to him, run. Get as, to Him as fast as you can. Does your sin drive you to Christ or does it drive you from Christ? That'll tell you whether you're a Luke chapter 5 or John chapter 21, Peter. Are you actually uh, in your devotion time meeting Him? Are you connecting with the Lord? Uh, do you feel His love on, in your heart? Is your prayer time, or in your prayer time, do you make a breakthrough? Do you see God answering those things and working uh, through your prayers. Listen, I'm going to tell you today, friend, Christian service and Christian activities, they can get you near him, but they're not going to get you in him. You have to get beyond that. I encourage you to get in the deep water. How do you do that? Well, the way we saw it here is sometimes it requires obeying when it makes no sense. It makes no earthly sense, and yet we obey. That requires trust. That's what it really comes down to, trusting our Lord and Savior. You continue to do what he says. You trust him when life does not always make sense, when you don't understand all the pieces of the puzzle. Get in the deep water. Uh, Jesus wants you there. He wants that relationship with you. Our sins ought to drive us to him, not from him. And let's have that attitude even today. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. when <clears throat> We talked about several different things in the message today, but I'd like to just challenge you, I don't know where the Lord has uh, touched your heart throughout this message. But what about it? Have you been obeying Him no matter if the order makes sense? Have you been doing what He says nevertheless because He says so? Uh, Have you been obedient? Uh, Have your sins separated you or driven you to Him? Oh, listen, friend. Let's not treat Jesus like a religion. Let's treat Him as a Savior. As you stand along with me, as she begins to play, if the Lord spoke to your heart, would you respond? The altar is open. If you're here today and you're not a child of God, you never accepted Christ as your Savior. Don't leave without making that decision. If you're a dear Christian here today, how's your relationship? Are you John chapter 21? Luke chapter 5.